We are about to embark on Romans 14, verse 1, that runs all the way to chapter 15, verse 13. And if I had my way, we would just have uh, one of those conferences where we'd meet on Saturday, spend about six hours here. Uh, this is absolutely wonderful place to be. I'm not going to have my way this morning, so don't worry about that. I do realize that we probably need to digest it in bits and pieces along the way. Uh, it is absolutely profound truth that stands before us this morning. It is something that we desperately need to learn and exercise, and if we do find the place where we're actually putting these passages to practice, we will, each and every one, become much more mature. I don't know of a more thought-provoking place that you can find, uh, certainly not in the book of Romans. We're about to go, Lord willing, if I don't feel led to change my mind, to 1 Corinthians, and the issue gets brought up there again. It's such an important issue for the church uh, that Paul brings it up in a number of different places. But in 1 Corinthians, he talks about it at length. And here at Romans, well, he spends more than a chapter on the subject. It is, as I said, completely forgotten. Uh, as I started studying through this, I felt like I was in Josiah's day and I had found the book of the law. And I felt like tearing my clothing, so to speak, like they did in the Old Testament and repenting because I don't, as again, I, I just don't remember a church discussing these matters, let alone really taking them to task and trying to apply them into the body. And so that's what we're going to do the next several weeks. But the title of the sermon is Accept One Another, and it's part one, and I have no idea, any idea, how many parts this will actually go before we finish up. And I, I do want to linger. I do want to take my time. I do want to cause a lot of turmoil in your mind as you think about and consider these things that we're supposed to be doing. We have not left the subject of love by any stretch of the imagination. If you remember, all of our difficulty started at Romans 12, verse 1, when we turned the page in Romans or, or turned on the door hinges of this letter. And by the time we got to chapter or verse 9 of chapter 12, rather, where I said, let love be without hypocrisy, that broke many of you to the point of tears, and we began to sort that out, what that really looks like to love in an unhypocritical fashion. Again, we haven't left that. We're actually going to learn to apply that principle in the context of the diversity within the church. In other words, we're going to actually learn how to love one another in spite of the fact that we are incredibly diverse of conscience and conviction. Now, unfortunately, i got to pause and explain the word diversity because the world and Satan has this way of stealing words from the church and redefining them. In fact, when we started talking about love, I had to stop a number of times and remind you the biblical definition of love because your definition is wrong. Yours developed out of your own wisdom and out of your own heart and out of the culture and context in which you live, and it's way far away from what's defined in Scripture. Likewise, when I talk about diversity, I'm not talking about all the foolishness that's going on in the world today and how the world is trying to promote diversity. I'm talking about what we will see, how the Bible defines diversity, and we laying hold of that and learning to accept one another, even though, again, we're very different on some issues in regard to opinion, in regard to conscience, in regard to conviction. So it is an extreme application of a very simple principle. And I cannot tell you, I was absolutely astounded at the timing that we find ourselves in. It is impeccable because one of my favorite preachers on the planet got caught up this week in something he said, and he has been removed from the radio for what he said. He has been denounced and called to recant and repent by a number of other people that I enjoy to listen to. And it's this issue. And so I've taken this on with much prayer, asking and begging the Lord to teach me, because without question, that was not by chance that all that took place this week, and it's helping me to walk through this with a perspective, hopefully with a biblical perspective. So what do we do with all the diversity of conviction and conscience that's been put together, woven together, like we say in our, in our prayers, into one body? 
Now, there's three attitudes that, that come forth from 14 and 15, but really there it's bookend by one word. And if you'll notice with me in 14.1, Paul writes, Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. And if you'll look at his conclusion over in chapter 15, verse 7, you'll see that very same word, therefore, accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And so that's why I'm titled the sermon, Accept One Another, Part 1, and Part 2, and Part 3, and however many parts we go. We're talking about having this attitude of acceptance, and I'll probably define this more than once as we walk through this, because that's such a terrible word. That's way down far in my notes, but I'll go ahead and talk about it right now. It's a compound word, and I, and I gave you the illustration of my son coming home for Christmas, if you'll remember. It's to draw near and to take hold of. And we do this so well in the South when we see somebody that we hadn't seen for just a minute that we desperately love, and when we go straight to them and we grab them up in our arms and we just squeeze the life out of them. I couldn't do that in the Northwest. They thought I was weird. They don't hug people. They keep their distance. But here in the South... We don't keep our distance. We violate each other's private space all the time, and everybody's okay with it. But that's this word. And so Paul's saying, y'all are really different folk. But I want you to accept one another, if you will, draw near, lay hold one another, and have that kind of attitude in the context of the body. Now, there's other words that if you look over in 14, 19, it's not just the idea of acceptance. It builds, if you'll notice verse 19 of chapter 14. So then we pursue the things which make for peace. So there's another attitude that must be pursued in the body. Acceptance of one another. Peace with one another. And then if you'll notice over in chapter 15 verses 5 and 6. And this really is where we're headed. This is the goal. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the, notice this, same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we've got acceptance, we've got unity, or we've got peace, and then lastly, we've got unity. Now here's why, and again, I'm going to do this often, leaving my outline for just a second. Those are most important. But as Americans... And especially as Southerners, we have the attitude that our opinions are most important. Our convictions are most important. Our consciousness, the things that we wrestle with, are most important. And so we're always going about the business of trying to convince other people that we're right and we bring that into the church. And you're missing the mark because he's describing for us the attitudes that we cannot get away from, and that is one of acceptance, peace, and unity. And if you wanted to tie all those together with one word, what would be the word? Love. Remember, we haven't left the building when we're talking about the subject of love. And so we do this all the time. We do it in our homes with our spouses. We'll argue about anything because we want to be right and we want them to conform to what we think about a particular situation. We'll even argue about the particular path that we go to get to the store because we think we're right. We'll argue at work with our co-workers about particular circumstances because we're convinced it needs to be done this way. And so we'll get in an argument, cause division at work because we're going to be right. And you take that sinful attitude, you bring it into the context of the church and, and we're off and running. And I'll tell you, the most frustrating place and the most common place that that takes place within the church is from this podium right here. Because so often a preacher will get up and preach on his personal convictions and his personal opinions, and he'll do so with a very loud voice, trying to convince a congregation of people that he's absolutely right on the subject. I wonder how many sermons were preached on the subject of vaccinations and masks and left behind the Word of God because they had an opinion on the matter and they were going to convince everyone in the congregation that they were absolutely right. 
Nothing could be further from the truth nor the principles that we find in Romans chapter 14 and 15. Now, if you study the text, and I trust that you will, there are four, maybe five. I'm, on the, I'm in the camp that there's five reasons that we're to have these attitudes. And most of the reasons start with the word for. So if you study this, I want you to go looking for four or five reasons that we are to accept one another. If you look at the end of verse 3, you'll notice the first reason that he gives. For God has accepted him. In other words, you might want to think about accepting your brother or sister in Christ because God already has. And so if you think that you're more important or have better reasons than God, you might as well forget that because God has already accepted him. Reason number two, if you'll notice at the end of verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So some things you shouldn't be so absolutely adamant about convincing other people that you're right. Another reason is in verse 15, for it is because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. If you don't accept, you've left love behind. And that's our foundation as the people of God. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Chapter 15, verse 3, for even Christ did not please himself. So why are you running around here trying to please yourself? And then finally, if you'll, again, the conclusion... Verse 7, and this is part I find fascinating. The conclusion of this section is this in verse 7, Therefore accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And if you remember the end of the last section over in chapter 13, verse 14, it's exactly the same principle, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the end of every journey and topic and discussion of the Bible is Jesus. He always is. And so we always need to consider what he did and how he handles situations in order that the church might handle them faithfully and properly. Now, again, before, and I've run out into it and I keep drawing back and running out into it, but I do need to lay some groundwork because there are two great earthly treasures that are physical realities yet have a foundation in the spiritual realm. And one of those is this book. I mean, you can hold the spiritual wisdom of God in your hands. That's about as spiritual well, it is as anything else on this planet, yet you've got a copy of it in your lap right now. And most of the time I bring you to that understanding, but I need to bring you to another understanding this morning. There is another thing like it, and that is the church. And I'm not talking about the building. I'm talking about you. You are a physical reality. I see you with my own two eyes, yet you are grounded in the spiritual like nothing else. And so I really want us not necessarily to leave the word behind because it's going to guide us through that. But we have to understand ourselves as the church as being physical and representing a spiritual God before a lost and dying world. In other words, we diligently must apply ourselves to these truths and get them right. We have a responsibility as the people of God to act according to the word of God and demonstrate the glory of God accurately and faithfully. That's always my prayer before I ever get up here so many times, God, make me faithful. I don't care if I'm foolish. I don't care if I fumble over my words. At the end of the day, I have to be faithful. Because if you're not faithful, you're foolish. So I don't care what you have to do to use me as an illustration. Make me faithful. That likewise needs to be our prayer as the church. And when I look at all that took place this week, I was so disheartened because they've absolutely abandoned 14 and 15. Because they're absolutely convinced that they're right. And so they're pointing their fingers and speaking judgment against somebody they ought to be more careful with. Now, got your mind set on the church, but let's just glory for a little while. Let's, let's meditate for a little while in the design of who you are. Because you need to be 
blown away by the creativity and the beauty and the wonder of the church. Anytime I do this, I always take you back to creation, right? I always start there because that always gets my mind turning. And when you think about the heavens and you think about the beauty and the wonder and the order, when you think about the diversity and the function and the purpose and you think about the stars always in their proper place since the beginning of time, always able to send us in particular directions that we need to go. When you think about the sun that faithfully runs its course every morning, giving heat by day and light during the day, and then he passes on to the darkness in the night. When you think about the purpose and the function that the moon fulfills, when you think about the atmosphere and and everything that God has set in its place, you ought to be absolutely awestruck at the glory of God, the design of God, the beauty of God, the purpose of God. It's unimaginable and unthinkable when you think about all those things. But let me bring you out of the heavens and put you on the earth and you begin to think about the beauty and the detail of the mountains and the valleys and the meadows and the streams and the rivers and the beaches and everything on them. And you think about all the beauty and all the wonder of all those places you've been and you have to realize it's the fingerprint of God. What a glorious and magnificent God we have to create all these things. And then you come into the animals, the animals on the land, the fish in the sea and the birds in the air. You think about the birds, you you really begin to get a picture of the church. I'll use them as an illustration. They're so different. They look incredibly different, but they all are in that category of being birds. They sound different. They have different colors. They do different things. They have different purposes. They live in different places. Yet they all sing to the glory of God. And you begin to look at those and you're just, you ought to be absolutely awestruck at the creativity and the design of God. And then I'll bring you on into human beings and you think about our design and our abilities. It it still cannot be repeated by even modern science. The technology of the human body is astounding. When you think about all the brain can do, AI is a joke compared to the brain. All the things, all the processes that just went through for me to make one sound of one word and move one finger simultaneously as if I was making that sound with my hand and my finger. All of that in the wisdom and the design of God in the human brain, when you think about the eye, it's extraordinary. So let me ask you the question, when we think about the heavens, the earth, when we think about the human body, what about the church? When God designed the church, was He so careful and thoughtful and meticulous and particular when He sat down to design this body? Or was it just random and happenstance? Did he just let the chips fall where they may and thought, oh, I'll clean this mess up once it gets formed? When whoever comes to faith, I'll try to fit them in somewhere. When they decide to move here, I'll try to figure out what I'm going to do with them now that they've moved 100 miles away from where I had them. Is that the way God approaches the church? Or do you think that our sovereign, creative, marvelous, all-wise, all-knowing Father had design in mind in eternity past before anyone ever professed faith in the Lord Jesus, before Christ ever died on Calvary's tree? I would submit to you that He knows everything about everyone, everywhere, even sitting here this morning. I love our prayers around here this morning. You guys have really laid hold of that, how he has knit us together. And I can't tell you what a more beautiful and faithful truth that is when you think about the design of the body of Christ. When you think about the bride of the glorious Son, surely you can grasp the detail and attention the Heavenly Father gave to the bride of Christ. It is astounding to think about all the detail that God has gone in just to create Corinth Baptist Church in Macedonia. Just to put us in our particular places in the context of this body. Now that's the philosophical wonderings, but let me bring you to many passages that really help you understand the design of the church. 
I don't want you to turn there. I said we would go there soon, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul starts out that letter like no other letter that he ever writes. And it's really, I call it really a, a smack in the face. It was with so much purpose. Paul writes every word with purpose. And in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, these are the words he writes, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Do you know why he would refer to it as the church of God? Because the church of Corinth had forgotten whose church it was. And when you read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you can see these people kind of like to do their own thing, their own way. And so Paul is constantly trying to bring them back around as what is consistent and faithful to the Scriptures. And they're constantly wanting to venture out and just explore new ways of doing things. And Paul's like, no, this is the way. This is the way we need to do things. And so he starts the whole letter out with, this is the church of God. And I'll probably spend an entire week preaching on that when I get to the first Corinthians because we've abandoned that in the Western church. This is the church of us. That's why we do the way that we do. We've patterned church around the person and not the God who has delivered the person through His Son. It's not His church, it's our church. If it was His church, most of the churches would have to close for several weeks in order to get things right because they're so wrapped up in doing things wrong. And so when you begin to think about the church, the first understanding is this. You have to come to this. This is His. This is not mine. This is not the deacons. This is not the elders. This is not the Southern Baptist. This is not even the Baptist church. This is the church of God. And it belongs to Him and His Word must guide us in all of our understanding. You look at other passages and you think about how it got its beginning. And it's got its beginning on Calvary. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes this, He put all things in subjection under His feet, meaning the Father to the Son. And He gave the Son as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. In other words, our beginning began with our head, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Without Calvary, there's no church. But because of Calvary, we have the church. We are the body of Christ and He is our head. Then you get a picture in the passages of the end of the church and it's absolutely beautiful. It's found in Revelations 5 where it says this, Worthy are you to take the book to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe, tongue and people and nation. I gave you the first day and the last day, so to speak. Of the church. And when we look at it in that last day and we stand in glory and we look around, we go, Lord, you, you got somebody from everybody. Yep, that was always the plan. You, you didn't forget anybody. Every nation's here, Lord. Every tribe, every tongue, every language, they're all represented in glory. To which he responds, That was always the plan. It's complete, it's full. I designed it that way. And notice the glory that I get from it. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's glorious to hear and to see every nation represented at the foot of the throne praising God. He designed it. But again, there's so many passages. Again, we could have gone endlessly with our time. Let me talk just a minute about the makeup of the church. That's quite humbling. Again, I'll draw a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul writes this to the arrogant church. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak to shame the strong. God chose the base things of the world, the despised things God has chosen. God chose the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. So when we stand there in glory and see the church completed and filled from every tribe and tongue and nation, he's like, Lord, not only did you get somebody from everywhere, you were picking from the, the low rung on the ladder, weren't you? Yeah, mostly. You, you picked... The insignificant ones, not the significant ones, yes, mostly. 
You picked the forgotten ones. You, you picked the nobodies. Why didn't you pick the somebodies? I mean, why in the world when you went into a different tribe or a people group and you started to preach the gospel, why didn't you work on the significant ones, the glorious ones, the impressive ones, the important ones, the wise ones, the smart ones, the talented ones? Because God goes, that's not what I did. That's not what I chose to do. Remember Isaiah 53? Oh, there was nothing about Jesus that would draw you to him physically. He was not impressive. No, I designed the church to look like my son. It's a, it's a large group of very unimpressive people. Not so important. Not that talented. Not that great. I designed it to look like my son when I sent him to be your savior. When you think about the purpose within the church, there's purpose within and there's purpose without. Listen to this. The purpose within, God gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure and stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That means the purpose within this body is to pursue maturity. We're supposed to grow. We're supposed to look more like Jesus with every week that passes and every month that comes. Our goal within this body, part of that goal is to grow up and to act like Christ. But we don't just have purpose within, we've got purpose without. Listen to our purpose outside of us or through us in 1 Timothy 3. Paul writes, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. In other words, we're a monument that's sitting in the middle of Macedonia. And on that monument, you could write truth. That's why we're here. We're to be a testimony to the truth of God in a lost and dying culture and community. And if you'll think about that in the context of what's going on in the church today, they want to look like the culture. They're not interested in truth. They're interested in being accepted by culture. They've abandoned truth. But we're supposed to stand for the truth. We're supposed to fight for the truth. We're supposed to proclaim the truth. It's our job. That's how he designed us. And speaking of design, that's the last thing I want to mention to lay this groundwork and then we'll move on. When you think about the design of the church, I want to give you three words or three parts of the one word design. Listen to what God did. In 1 Timothy, I've already read, we're referred to as the household of God, but listen to this. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and appeal to the younger women as sisters. In other words, in the wisdom and design of God, what are we supposed to look like? Like a family. That's how He designed it. We're supposed to act like fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. We're not supposed to act like a business or an organization. We don't need Robert's rules of orders to keep things right around here. We need respect and love like your family operates at home. Now, again, I've told you this a number of times. You people get that like nobody I've ever seen. But again, we've got more work to do. That's the feel. That's the presentation. That's what we're supposed to look like. The second design mark that you come to is our spiritual unity. Listen to this in Ephesians 4. There is one body and one spirit. Just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. There are so many things that we share. When you think about all the diversity... And all the differences that I'm about to get into in just, a, in just a minute, there's some things that define us, things that we're united in, things that we share, things that are absolutely and must be common. And there's your list. They're all spiritual realities. Chris and I have the same Lord. Chris and I have the same faith. 
Chris and I have the same baptism. We share the same spirit. There's no differences there whatsoever. It's as like as like can be because it's the very same. You understand? And when you read through 14 and 15, you're like, oh, wait a minute, we're supposed to always appeal to that, that thing that unites us. You're exactly right. And if you abandon the things that makes you one, then you've abandoned the purpose and you've missed 14 and 15 because churches were doing that. They were forgetting that they were of one body and one spirit and one calling and one Lord and one faith. They abandoned all that and they began to focus on their differences and their distinctions and it caused division. We're exactly the same in particular ways. But in other ways, in the design of God, we could not be more different. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 12. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, then I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the ear says, well, I'm not an eye, so I must not be part of the body. No, it is not for this reason any the less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, how in the world would it hear? If the whole were hearing, how in the world could it smell? But listen to this. God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? So when we get to that in 1 Corinthians 12, that's one of the greatest well, that's the one the Lord chose, illustrations that you're ever going to find. When you think about the church, you can think about the human body. What if all I had was an ear? What if everything was an ear? What in the world could I do? One thing is all I could ever do. If every part of me was a nose and every part of me smelled, what could I do? Well, I couldn't see, I couldn't talk, I couldn't walk, I couldn't feel, I couldn't hear. Right? I could just do one thing. And so even though we're spiritually the same concerning things, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, we could not be designed more differently because there's many things and many ways in which we can glorify God and so He made us extremely, extraordinarily different. Now this is the part that I want you to understand that I'll repeat often. There is tremendous diversity that has been designed for unity for the purpose of glory. Let me say that again, and I'll say it so many times. In the body, there is tremendous diversity for the purpose of unity in order that we might bring Him glory. If you don't listen, you got to get this. This is, I know. If you don't have diversity, you can't have unity. If you don't have diversity, you have conformity. And if you have conformity, you can't have unity. Illustration, husband and a wife. You can look at the human beings as, as a group and notice that a woman and a man share some similarities. But the closer you examine them, you come to the conclusion, you know, they really couldn't be much, much more different than they already are. I mean, they're so physically different, but not just physically. Man, they think differently. I mean, man, husband, can you really figure out what your wife's thinking? I mean, it's a struggle. They think differently. And once the woman figures it out, because it takes her like five minutes to figure out what the man's thinking about, she's like, he's so simple-minded. We're different in the way that we think. We're different in the way that we respond. We're different in the way that we deal with our children. We're different in the way that we deal with finances. We're different in the way that we deal with stress. We're different in the way we deal with food. We're different in every single solitary way. God has made the husband and the wife, the male and the woman, so diverse. But what does He say at marriage? These two I have made. You see, without diversity, you can't have unity. You have to have diversity in order to have unity, because if you don't have diversity, you have conformity. And conformity can't get anything done because you're all an ear. You're all a nose. And so we have to understand how God has made us different, understand it's for the sake of unity, because He's glorified in unity, and we can accomplish the purposes of God as the people of God. But we, again, we don't like that. 
I don't like anybody being different than me. I mean, that just kind of gets all up in my face. How dare you think differently about me on a particular subject? I'm going to spend the next 30 minutes trying to convince you that I'm right, and then I'm going to be mad at you for three months until you come to me and you go, well, you were right. And I'll go, now I can sleep. I'm good. And that's how they deal, to, deal with situations in the church. And that's not the design of the church. That's not what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to accept one another. So let me go on. So Satan and sinners have worked tirelessly against the plan of God, this diversity and unity. Obviously, Satan has created his counterfeit churches, but we can't do anything about that. But we can do, we can work against what we have done as sinners as we've turned to our own understanding and we've turned to our own desires and our own wisdom. We can greatly do something about that. So let me turn to the church a little more and talk about what members have done. Again, I know I'm repeating myself in some instances, but it's what the text says. It's where the text is leading us. We have a tremendous desire for conformity. Again, we don't like people that get up in our face. We don't like people to challenge us. We want to be around as a church. And if you ever go church shopping, I can give you a lot of things that you're going to do wrong. But here's a list of some things you'll do wrong. You're looking for a church that's just like you. You want to be around people like you. You want to be around like-minded people. You want to be around people that doesn't confront you awkwardly. You don't want to be around people that's more or less socially awkward than you because they make you uncomfortable. You want to be around a church that's full of your friends and your family because that's the group that you've conformed to. Most people like to attend larger churches because larger churches have a lot more smaller groups and you can kind of weave in and out of those smaller groups to find the group that you conform to the best. We pick a church that preaches our favorite doctrines and avoids the doctrines that we don't like or disagree with. We pick a church that promotes personal opinions and convictions just like we do. We pick a church that we think meets the needs that we consider to be important. We pick a place that is as much like us as we can possibly find. And then what do we say? I just sense the spirit there. No, what you sense is your spirit there because you found a place that's just like you. We've done it too. Do you know a church that's more full of young families who's got a bunch of kids? Do you know a church that it's a real struggle for people that are not in our season of life to find comfort and feel like they fit in here? You go to a church down the road and you walk in and you're like, man, everybody there is 80. Well, that's right. They're comfortable there. They found a group that looks like them, that thinks like them, that appreciates the things that they consider most important. Looks just like them. That's what we do. And we've got to understand that's not the design of God. I appreciate the singles in the church. I appreciate the elderly in the church. I appreciate the teenagers in the church. I appreciate the children in the church. That's coloring right now. I appreciate the young parents in the church. Because I understand that that is the design of God. And those are the things that we've got to get right and to do well. Because that's how God has designed this body to be. And I'll tell you, leadership, and it's not just membership has pursued these things. Leadership pursues these things as well. I know pastors that avoid controversial and divisive subjects in the text. He's like, I'm not going to preach on that difficult stuff. I got half that believe this and half that believe that. I'm not going near that. I'm going to skip that. Because I don't want to cause any problems. We've got one church, Baptist church, that has led in this, and so many others have followed in this, they've gone about creating their own diversity within the body. And, and this, is, this is like the latest fad in the church today. If I mentioned the name, you would know the name. He decided his church wasn't diverse enough. So he picked a man of a different color to be his co-pastor. 
He picked his elders based on their ethnicity. You look and there's so many different countries that are recognized in his eldership. Because he thinks his church needs to be diverse and he apologized for being white. Now everybody recognizes the foolishness of that and frankly he does need to repent if he chose an elder because they were white. But Travis, you're an elder not because you're white. There's a list of particular criteria in the Bible that we prayed and considered that you met those criteria. Therefore, we recognized what God had done in your life. It had nothing to do with your ethnicity. I'm sorry. But frankly, if I chose a co-pastor because of the color of his ethnicity, I would need to repent and apologize to you. But it's never about that because we follow the truth of God's Word. It's about what Scripture says about the leadership in the church. And so we've got churches that are manufacturing diversity and guess what you need to do if you disagree with them? And they did this too. You need to leave. We've canceled your membership. Isn't that funny? It's diversity manufactured that's resulted in conformity because if you don't agree with me, you need to go. You see how ignorant leadership has done in the church rather than simply recognizing what God is doing and accepting one another. So we share all these wonderful things in common, right? But listen to some of the things that we're absolutely different on and then we'll turn to the text. We don't share personalities. We don't share opinions. We don't share perspectives. We don't share one conscience and we don't share convictions. Oftentimes we find ourselves at very great differences. We don't laugh at the same things nor cry. Some are tough, some are tender. Some are quiet and soft-spoken and some are not. And I would dare not look up at this point. Some are easygoing, some are not. Again, I'm not looking up. We don't have the same opinion about many things. We don't have the same backstory. We don't have the same upbringing. We don't share the exact same experiences that have shaped us. We don't share the same testimony of who we were before Jesus. We don't even share the same function now that we know Jesus in the church. We don't express devotion to God in exactly the same way. We're all scattered about along each of our spiritual journeys and maturities that can lead to quite a bit of tension sometimes. We are so different in so many different ways. I even looked this up this morning. So the McCrackens have started coming. They're Scottish. Carol, Irish. Haynes, English. Jones, Hebrew. Hancock, Dutch. Anderson, Greek. And I ran out of time. We could not be more different from where we came, but we all wound up at the very same place, and that is in Christ. So Paul mentions two groups here. And if you'll notice with me in 14.1, let me define a couple of more things for you, and then I'll quit. I actually set a timer this morning because I was like, Joey, you're going to go way too long. Notice 14.1. Now, accept the one who is weak in faith. Notice 15.1. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weakness of those without strength. In other words, Paul takes all the diversity and he tries to lump everybody up into two categories, the weak in faith and the strong in faith. And I'm like, Paul, that would be really easy if there were only two categories, but they're not only two categories because you've got about a thousand categories within each category. But you still land at the same place. You, you need to accept one another and understand you both have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, and one God and Father over all, who is in all and through all. Let me, let me land on some problems that we're going to run into, and then I'll conclude us this morning because I've just hit the 45-minute mark. Holidays. What do you want to do? How about Christmas? What are you going to do? Halloween? Would you really participate in Satan's birthday? We did it every year with our kids. Easter? 
You're going to hide eggs? Do you know the backstory of that? We always did. What about food and drink? Let me start with food before I open up the second can of worms. I mean, really, how much is too much? Do you ever feel guilty about the amount you eat? You're from the South, probably not. Believe it or not, some people do. Some people feel ashamed when they go walking out of that buffet with a plate and got food falling out all four sides. And they feel convicted about it. What about drink? Oh, we got different opinions in here. I'm a teetotaler. And you know what? Because I'm a teetotaler, I'm as holy as they come. We need to understand there's principles in Scripture that don't exactly point to being a teetotaler. There's people that have different perspectives about drink in the Bible. What about dress? Women, what's she going to wear? Is it okay to wear pants? Should you wear makeup? Or should I always wear a dress? And by the way, how provocative is too provocative for coming into the church? Men, what are you going to do about the hair on your face? Should it be shaved? Should it be not? Believe it or not, there's churches that say if you shave your face, it's just shameful. There's other churches that say if you mount that pulpit with hair on your face, you're nothing but an embarrassment. So men, what are you going to do about your facial hair? Music. Here you go. Instruments? I don't know. Should we? Shouldn't we? Drums? Do you really think drums are okay in the church? Shouldn't we only have organs? This one's going to hurt. School. Homeschool? Public school? Private school? Well, we homeschool our kids. We, we're holy. Really. You think you're more holy because you homeschool your kids? You, you're, you're better? Well, we would never do public. I mean, that's, that's embarrassing. You know where public's going. We pay for private. That's better. You see, we got opinions and perspectives all over the place. I could go into wealth. I could go into entertainment. I could go into vaccines and masks. Churches divided over those issues. I'm like, really? What happened to Romans 14 and 15? You're going out the door because somebody's wearing a mask and you don't think they have the Spirit of God because they got a mask on their face? You want me to tell you, too, that the church you wrestle with, and then I'll finish up with the one that I wrestled with this week? Slaves. Can I have them? Or is that not okay? And the church wrestled over that issue. You're like, really? Well, I'm like, yeah, because the Bible tells how a slave ought to, I mean, how a slave owner ought to treat a slave. And you're like, well, if he tells you how to treat him, then you see. Wedding rings. One of my favorite periods in, in the church, 1600s, they argued over the wearing of wedding rings. Because the Pope and the Catholic Church did something funny with the ring. He made it weirdly significant. And the Puritans said, well, if you wear a ring, you're not really close to Christ. You're close to the Pope, but you know nothing about Jesus. Get the ring off your finger. And I'm like, really, guys? I mean, I kind of like mine. I don't see it as a sign of my spiritual maturity. The last one I want to bring you to is the one that happened this week. So Alistair Begg, and I don't usually talk about pastors, has been so faithful in preaching the Word of God for over 40 years now. He had a grandmother come to him, and her grandson was marrying a transgender person. And grandmom said, should I go? Alistair's advice was this. Have you told your grandson about Jesus? Oh, without question. I've told him about the grace of God and the person of Christ. Have you told him that this particular lifestyle dishonors God and it's rebellion against the Word of God? I have. At this point, I'm absolutely astounded because most people don't even go that far. I had a loving conversation with him explaining the good gospel and, and what God commands us and it's for us. So he fully understands where you stand on this issue. And she said, yes. He said, then I would go. 
Christianity has erupted. They canceled him on the radio. They've canceled him in other programs. All the big names are coming out, calling him to repent, recant. And to be honest with you, I don't, I don't think I would tell you to do that. And now that I'm on the radio, it's going to wind up with me too. I've heard him preach so many times about all the sexual immorality and there's nobody more faithful, nobody that more understands the text and nobody that believes the text than he. But he's a pastor and most of them have forgotten that. You guys are going to walk through some things. In fact, some of you already have walked through some things. And you're going to have to figure out how do I balance the truth of God and the love for a grandson or a grandchild or a child or anything like that, how in the world can I demonstrate and balance those two truths? It's hard. It's so hard. But that's part of the things that we're talking about now. Oh, you can hold the whole, you can hold the holier than thou road and go, I wouldn't darken the door. And I'm like, you probably have never been a pastor and I know you've never been hurt. Because it's really hard sometimes. And you weep because you don't know what to do. You don't know what to say. You would never dishonor the Lord. But you want your family member to know that I'll love you until the day that I die. You see, this Christian faith, it's difficult sometimes. It's very difficult. And frankly, if one of you came to me and said, hey, I need to repent, and I go, for what? I went to a wedding this weekend that, well, you know. You know what it was about. I would ask you the same thing. Have you told them about the love of Jesus? I have. Do they know where you stand? They do. Then I'm not really sure why you want me to forgive you or repent for doing that. You see, most people just say, I'm not doing that. And they never say anything else. Now, if you think you've done well in not going and not saying, you're deceiving yourself. You've done absolutely nothing. Your primary responsibility is to open your mouth and say and to speak truth. And if you've done that, you still got to love. And figuring out how to do that, Man, may the Lord help you. And if you seek Him, He will. Now let me bring us back because I actually have to land this plane. God's designed it this way. And the world has made it very difficult to stick with the design of God. But as the people of God, we've got to figure that out. But here's what's wonderful. We'll be able to do that, trusting in the Spirit of God, the Word of God, and each other. Because we all have different perspectives, we all have different opinions, and we're all deeply devoted to God. And we're waiting through a world that Satan's dropped a bomb on. And it's nothing but a mess. But I think you people are going to be able to get this right and understand there are things that we will not move an inch on. And there are all those ones that I read. But there are other things that there's a lot of wiggle room for because we still got to figure out how to love. Let's pray.